Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Thomas Carlyle, the famous historian, once spent two years writing a book on the French Revolution. When he got it all done, he gave it to John Stuart Mill, who was also a famous figure, to read it and give him his impression of it. And then the unthinkable happened. John Stuart Mill's servant used the only copy of the manuscript that existed as paper to start a fire, and it was all burned up. Everything he had done, and he didn't have a second copy. Two years of his life, he felt, was lost. Thousands of long, lonely hours were spent in writing that manuscript. He could not imagine writing that book again. Needless to say, at that point, he was very discouraged. You ever been discouraged? Maybe I should ask that another way. When was the last time you were discouraged? More accurate way to put that. We all get discouraged. Uh, no one is immune. People get discouraged looking for a job and can't find one. And then they get discouraged when they get one and things don't work out right on that job. People get discouraged trying to get ahead financially. And just when they get a little money saved in the bank, the transmission goes out on the car. People get discouraged with other people who do not keep their promises. People get discouraged with themselves when they fail to keep their own resolutions, such as a resolution to lose weight. What I want to do today is tell you the story of a man in the Bible who no doubt was discouraged, and that's probably putting it mildly. The fellow I have in mind is named Jacob. You might remember we've covered part of his story in this study. Uh, Jacob had just deceived his father, Isaac, in getting the birthright. As a matter of fact, he stole that birthright from his brother, and his brother threatened to kill him. So his mother said, you know, you better get out of town before your brother killed you. Just get out of town for a few days and uh, maybe his anger will subside and then you can come back. So Jacob fled. But he was facing an uncertain future that was certainly discouraging. He was far from home. Not sure that he would ever come back. As a matter of fact, he did not come back in a few days, a few weeks, or even a few months. It was years later before he managed to make it back. But at this point, he didn't know if he would ever make it back home. He had no assurance of finding a wife 
a job, a home, or even having his basic needs met. He was seemingly all alone in a hostile world, with no guarantee that he would not be hunted down and killed by his brother Esau, or that he would be harmed by a bandit or a wild animal. He was on the road, all alone, and no doubt, very discouraged. One author looking at this story said, he was tired, anxious, frustrated, and afraid. Another said, he was lying in solitude, poor, helpless, and forsaken by men. So feeling all alone and fearing for his life, the one thing he needed at that point was a little bit of encouragement. What happens is, no less than the Lord himself encourages Jacob. So what I want us to do is not just study his discouragement, but let's see how God encouraged Jacob. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28. We're going to pick up the story in verse 11 where we are told, he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. And he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Let me pause here. We'll pick it up there in a moment. But let me just give you a bit of the setting of what's happening here. Verse 10 says that he went as far as Beersheba, and uh, he was going toward Haran. Now, uh, from Beersheba to Haran was a distance of 500 miles. Verse 11 says, so he came to a certain place. Now later, that place is identified as Bethel. He just calls it here a certain place. But in verse 19, he tells us that that place was named Bethel. Bethel was 70 miles from Beersheba. So to put this in perspective, if you were here and say going the measurements aren't quite exact, but it's close. Uh, say he was leaving here and setting out for Phoenix. That's a little less than 500 miles from here. And he got as far as San Bernardino. That's about 70 miles from here, roughly. But that'll give you some perspective of the journey. He's barely gotten started on the journey. To travel that 70 miles in that day would take about three days. So he's three days into this journey. It's nightfall, and he decides to stop and sleep for the night. So verse 11 says, he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun was set. He traveled by day and slept by night. And he took one of the stones that was there and put it at his head and he laid down in that place to sleep. 
little odd that it should say he took a stone. Some say he used it for a pillow. That doesn't sound very comfortable. Or that it was at the head of where he laid down. At any rate, it takes pains to point out that he was tucking in for the night at that particular spot, and it calls attention to the stone. That's not significant here, but it becomes significant later. He falls asleep, and then, of all things, he has a dream. This is one of the most famous passages in all of the book of Genesis. Everybody that's ever gone to Sunday school has heard of Jacob's Ladder. Well, Jacob's Ladder is in Genesis 28, verse 12. He dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top stretched to heaven. And there were angels, plural, of God, ascending and descending on it. So just picture in your mind a very tall ladder. And angels are running up and down on that ladder. I've heard of this all my life that I've been a Christian. I didn't become a Christian until I was 18. But I don't know that I knew this story before then, but you can't be a Christian sitting in a church very long without hearing about Jacob's ladder. Matter of fact, Jesus refers to this in John chapter 1. So it appears twice in the Bible. What in the world is the significance of that dream? I've often wondered that for years. What in the world is Jacob's ladder all about? Well, the significance is that there are angels, and that's another word for messengers, running up and down this ladder between heaven and earth. It is simply a pictorial way of communicating the fact that there is communication between heaven and earth. Communion, fellowship, there can be some kind of a relationship between those on the earth and those in heaven. Now, that's sort of the setting. Uh, I think for us, uh, we don't have dreams. Uh, God doesn't use dreams today like he did in the Bible times. But if God wanted to communicate to us, what does he do? You do know the answer to that, right? He wrote us a book. Right. So whatever this dream was to Jacob, the scriptures are to us. Uh, it contains letters. And someone has said those are love letters that God wrote to his children. Those are in the New Testament. So that the scriptures are God's word to us. There is a communication from heaven, and it's recorded in the book we call the Bible. Now there's more to this dream. So let's pick it up at verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it. Now he's dreaming this. He sees a ladder. Angels are running up and down the ladder. And at the top of the ladder is the Lord himself. And the Lord says to him, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you and your descendants. And also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
Now, he says further, verse 15, Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Now, this is the message. Uh, after this message, uh, Jacob has a response. But before we look at that, let's just see what the message was. This ladder is, there's a message coming from heaven. What's the message? Well, the message is in three parts. Verse 13 says, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord your God, uh, the, uh, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land which you, on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. The first thing he does is he gives Jacob a promise. I promise I'm going to give you the land that you are currently on. Now, he's only 70 miles from Beersheba. Beersheba's in the very southern part of the land. So he's still in what is called the promised land, what we would call today Palestine. Uh, he's in the holy land, if you wish to call it that. So God says, I'm going to give you a promise. And the promise is that I'm going to give you the land that you're on right now. That's the significance of the fact that, uh, why I drew out the fact he's only 70 miles from Beersheba. Now, um, God says, I'm going to give you the land. Have we heard that before? If you've been with me as we've been going through the book of Genesis, you know, that's one of the major ideas in the whole book of Genesis. Matter of fact, that's one of the basic ideas of the whole Old Testament. God says, uh, I'm going to give the Jewish people the land of Palestine. I'm going to give them the land of Canaan. It goes by all kinds of different names. But that's, I'm going to give it to you. So, he first gave that promise, that covenant, to Abraham. He then gave it to Isaac, and now he gives it to Jacob. As a matter of fact, this verse says, I am the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And the significance of that is, I promised your father, your grandfather actually, uh, Abraham the land, and I promised it to your father, and I'm now promising it to you. I am giving you a promise of this land. It's the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this seals the covenant that God had made with Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob. There's more to the promise. Look at verse 14. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. Again, this is something that has been said before in what we call the Abrahamic covenant. Namely, I'm going to give you the land and I'm going to multiply your descendants. I'm going to multiply your descendants so they become like, in other passages, the sand on the seashore, the stars in the heaven, and in this passage, the dust that's on the earth. In other words, it's going to be innumerable. You're not going to be able to count it. I'm going to multiply your descendants to such a great extent 
you would never believe it. It's going to be hugely multiplied over the centuries. Now, remember what he told Abraham? What he told Isaac? Out of you are going to come many nations. Remember that? So this is just another way of reinforcing the Abrahamic covenant that I'm going to make you a great uh, patriarch, and out of you are going to become many, 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 many people, innumerable descendants. And of course, Jacob himself had 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes of Israel, and out of that comes the whole Jewish race. So this is the promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob, and it's clearly been fulfilled in history. So the first promise is, I'm going to give you the land. The second promise is, I'm going to give you a multitude of descendants. There is a third promise. He says in the first part of uh, verse 15, Behold. By the way, you might notice verse 13 says, Behold. And now verse 15 says, Behold. Um, Don't slide over that too quickly. When an author in the scripture does that, that's like saying, Look! He wants you to, he's calling that to your attention. Look, did you see that? Well, that's what he's doing here. He's saying, behold, listen to this. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I got a little ahead of myself. I meant to get down uh, to the end of verse 14. I'll pick up verse 15 in a minute. Let me go back to the end of verse 14. I skipped it. And you and your seed and all your family in the earth shall be blessed. This is the third part of the promise. He says, uh, in you and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here's just the promise. I'll get to the other part in a minute. The promise has three parts. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to multiply your descendants. And thirdly, All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through your descendants. Now, how did that happen? How did God's promise to the Jewish people bless the whole world? That's what he's claiming here. And the answer is, this is a veiled reference to the coming Messiah. Uh, The scripture tells us about the coming of the Messiah hundreds of years before he got here, and it does it like peeling off the layers of an onion. And first of all, the references are vague, and then they get more and more and more specific until it gets down to such things as the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. About as specific as you can get. And that's in the book of Micah. And in the Daniel chapter 9, it even gives us the time of his arrival, all of which point to Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 describes his crucifixion. Unbelievable how accurate it is in describing the crucifixion. Psalm 16 tells us he's, not, he's going to be raised from the dead, in essence. So by the time you get through the Old Testament scriptures, you have this picture of the fact that this Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, he's going to die to pay for the sin of the world, that's in Isaiah 53, and he's going to be raised from the dead. And God has already told Abraham that if you just believe, it'll be counted to you for righteousness. So all you have to do in order to be forgiven and given the gift of eternal life 
It is believed that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he died, that he paid for your sin, and you trust him for the gift of eternal life, and whammo, you are in. So, the first thing God did to this discouraged child of his is he gave him, actually he reviewed and expanded on the promise. I made some promises to you. I promised to give you the land, I promised that you will have many descendants, and I promised that the whole world is going to be blessed through you. Now, I'm suggesting that the backdrop to all of this is he's discouraged. So how does God encourage discouraged people? What does he do? He says, ho, whoa, 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 Jacob. Let me remind you of a promise I made. Now, the promise he gave to Jacob is not the promise he gives to us, but the principle is the same, that the way God encourages his discouraged children is he reminds them of the promises he's given to them. For example, you get discouraged and you're thinking, my life is falling apart, Uh, this is not going to come to any good, nothing good can come out of this. And God says to you one day, maybe through another believer, through the scripture, oh, let me remind you of a promise I made. If you know me, if you've trusted my son, I've made a promise to you. All things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. Actually, that's more than just being a Christian. It's loving the Lord and following him. And he doesn't say everything is going to be good. He says it's going to work together for good. And if you read the passage, the good is that we be conformed to the image of his son. So no matter what happens to those who've trusted Christ, we can say, if we respond properly to the situation and trust the Lord in it, This is going to work out for my good. I'm going to be more Christ-like when all this gets done. God promised me that, so I can lean on that promise, and that might not solve all the discouragement, but I'll tell you what, it'll certainly help, because when you're discouraged, you're looking at the loss, and when you understand the promise of God, you are reminded of the gain. It's not all loss. You're going to get something out of this, no matter how bad it looks at the moment. So, the first thing God did is he gave Jacob a threefold promise. He does the same to us. The second thing he did, and this is where I started to get ahead of myself, was in verse 15. He says, behold, hey, look at this. I want you to miss this. I am with you you, and will keep you wherever you go. But let's just stop with that first phrase. I am with you. Stop. The first thing he does is remind Jacob of his promise. The second thing he does is remind Jacob of his presence. And he says, hey, buddy, I'm going to be with you. This is the second time in the Bible somebody has been told that. Isaac, his father, was told that back in chapter 26. Later, after this, 
Moses was told, I'm with you. Joshua was told, I'm with you. Gideon was told, I am with you. And in the New Testament, Jesus says this, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing those who come to me, teach them. And then he says this, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So God promises those who know him and are working for him that he will be with them down to the end of the age. So part of the way God encourages discouraged believers is he reminds them, I am with you. I will never leave you. Would that be encouraging? All right. Put your finger in Genesis. We're coming back. But I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 13. This is one of those verses that you really need to know. Uh, this is an incredible promise. Hebrews um, chapter 13. And look at verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. And here's why. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see how that's stated twice? I will never leave. I will never forsake. You see that? And just the repetition is emphatic. But let me tell you this. In English, if I use two negatives... Uh, it becomes a, a positive. In Greek, if I use two negatives, it's emphatic. If I say something negative twice, it's emphatic. In each of these phrases, there's two negatives. This is the most emphatic statement in all of the New Testament. I will never leave you. I will never, ever forsake you. That sort of gets at what he's saying. I will never ever leave you. I will never ever forsake you. That's sort of the idea. So God promises us, I don't care what you're going through, I will be with you. Now that's got to be deeply significant to Jacob. Uh, I mean, he's been kicked out of house and home and He's out on the road by himself, lonely, late at night, and boy, there is nobody with him. He is clearly all alone, and God comes along and says, let me encourage you, and the encouragement is, I am with you. Will that do? Would that encourage you, just to be reminded, I'm there, I'm not going anywhere. All right, so the second thing he does is he reminds him of his presence. The third thing is in verse 15 as well. And will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I have spoken to you. So what he says is this. He says, look, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. 
So he says in verse 15, I'm going to bring you back to where you are right now. I'm going to bring you back to this land. He's in the promised land. I will keep you in the meantime. I will not leave you until I have done what I have said to you, namely, bring you back here. Now, what could have been more encouraging to him than that? Think about this. He just said, I'm going to give you the land. But that's what he's fleeing from. For fear his brother would kill him. And God says, look, I made a promise. And I am going to fulfill the promise. I'm going to protect you while you're gone. I'm going to provide for you while you're gone. And I am going to bring you back to this place. So the way God encouraged him was he reminded him of his promise. He reminded him of his presence, and he reminded him of his provision for protection and to fulfill his promise. Wow. Isn't that great? So you get discouraged because you look at your circumstances and you think, wow, this is bad. And sometimes it is. No question about it. And you look at the ladder. Angels running up and down. They're running down. What's the message you're bringing me? Wow, the Lord's at the top. What does he have to say? Tell me, what's he saying up there? He's saying, why are you down in the mouth? What are you so discouraged about? Oh, I know the situation's bad. I, you probably should get out of town because of your brother Esau. I understand all that. But, but by the way, let me just, let's just have a little chat here, all right? I promised you this land, and I'm going to bring you back to it. In the meantime, I'm going to be with you. Can you handle that? And I'm going to take care of you until I get you back here because I said I would. So when you're discouraged, you can go to the scripture and say, the Lord is going to do what he said he was going to do in my life. The Lord's going to take care of me. What a great encouragement. Is that, would that be an encouragement? You know, I looked at this passage of Scripture and I thought, well, we're not like Jacob. I mean, we're not being kicked out of house and home and away from family and friends and running for our very life. That doesn't happen to us, right? And I thought, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. What's going on here is he's discouraged and God's encouraging him. And then it occurred to me, oh, wow. You know, everybody needs encouragement. Do you believe that? Would you say that's true? Matter of fact, you know, there are schools of thought, uh, psychotherapies, that if you just pick at random uh, a counselor and go see them, uh, your chances are of getting one of 14 basic approaches to therapy, psychological therapy. Now, usually counselors today take a little bit out of each one of them. They call themselves eclectic. But I've, I've studied in great detail those 14 schools of thought, taught that course in a theological seminary, um, just because I wanted to know what they were saying and evaluate it biblically. So I did all of that. One of the things I discovered is one of the major schools of thought, one that makes more sense than most, 
was started by a guy named Adler. He lived about the same time as Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung and those guys. And his whole thesis was that people are discouraged and they need encouragement. His whole thesis. Your problem is you need encouragement. And I think he's right. I think that uh, everybody gets discouraged. Everybody needs encouragement. In fact, this may come as a shock to you, but preachers need encouragement. In fact, while I was studying this passage of Scripture, which was a long time ago, many, a couple of years ago, and I got to this passage, and a pastor friend of mine out of state called me, and he said, uh, I, I've prepared a sermon, I've written it out, and I would like for you to read it and evaluate it for me. Would you mind doing that? And I said, I'd be happy to do that. And he emailed it to me. And I read it. And it was actually very good. And I thought, he's smart enough. He knows that. He knows this. Why is he asking me? He knows this is a good sermon. So we got back on the phone. And I said, ah, that's it's excellent. I did a great job. Good for you. And he said, thanks. I needed the encouragement. What? You're a pastor. You did a great job. You needed encouragement? You know what? Jacobs need encouragement. Pastors need encouragement. I hate to tell you this. I hate to bust your bubble. Pastors get discouraged. Matter of fact, they tend to get more discouraged than most people because of uh, all the disappointment they have with people who disappoint them. Been there, been there many times. And you just think, Lord, uh, and the Lord says, hey, let me, let me, whoa, 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 don't go there, c -c -c come here, let's have a little bit of chat. In the first place, I made some promises to you, I told you I'd be with you, and we're going to fulfill them, just hang in there, will you? Yes, sir. That's what's going on here, it's as simple as that. All right. He has a dream, and the Lord communicates to him, and he responds. And his response is really interesting. Look at verse 16. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. Wow. He says, you know, I just realized I, this is such an ordinary place. I mean, I got a rock for a pillow. Uh, and the Lord's here. Wow. The Lord's here, and I was not aware of it. Isn't that interesting? His dream made more sense than what he was thinking when he was awake. Matter of fact, that reminds me of a story um, this fellow said to his girlfriend, uh, I had a dream about you last night. And naturally, she was intrigued and wanted to know what it was about. And he said, well, I dreamed that I proposed to you. I wonder what that means. And she said, that's very simple. That means that you have more sense when you're asleep than when you're awake. <laughs> well... He had more sense when he was asleep and saw what the Lord was saying than he did when he was awake. Because when he was awake, he's thinking, I'm all alone. There is no hope. 
he fell asleep. God communicated to him through a dream, and he says, wow, the Lord's here. Now, I said earlier that we don't have dreams today. We have the Word. So may I suggest that you have more sense when you're in the Word than when you're awake? Then when you're thinking thoughts apart from the Word, that what you need to do is get your head in the book. Now, some people think that if all you study is the Bible, you're going to be so heavenly-minded, you're not going to be any earthly good. It's the exact opposite. If you get your head in the book, you'll be so heavenly-minded, you will be of some earthly good for a change. So he had more sense in the dream than he did when he was awake. So, he had this realization. In verse 17, he says, And I was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. In the Hebrew text, the word that's translated afraid comes from the same root as the word translated awesome. So that you could translate this something like, I was awestruck. Wow! And he says, this is an awesome place. There is none other than, uh, there is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So, he decides in verse 18, he rose up early in the morning and he took the stone that he had put at his head. Remember I told you earlier, this is going to become significant. And he set it up as a pillar. And poured oil on it, on the top of it, and he called the name of it Bethel. But the name of that city was Luz previously. So what he did is he made a memorial, not an altar. He made a memorial. And he said, I'm going to call this place Bethel, which means the house of God. Now, this is prior to the tabernacle. It's prior to the temple. And he's simply saying, uh, this, is, this is where I met the Lord. I'm going to call this place Bethel. Bethel in the Bible is mentioned more than any other city except Jerusalem. This is a deeply significant little city in the biblical record. So, in response to meeting the Lord, he made a memorial there. He did one more thing. And Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, Notice how often this passage talks about God being with you. If God will be with me, he said he was going to be with you and keep me in the way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on. Didn't he say he was going to provide for you? Wasn't that the point? He's going to have, you're going to have his presence, his provision, his protection. So that he says in verse 21, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then here's what I'm going to do. Bully for you. The Lord will be my God. Wow. He ought to be. Verse 22. And this stone that I have set as a pillar uh, shall be the Lord God's house, and all that I, uh, you give me I will surely give a tenth to you. Now, the point of this is really very, very simple. 
And that is simply this. That he's saying, the Lord has given me all of this, and if he fulfills all of this, I am going to make him my God. I'm going to establish a memorial in Bethel, and I'm going to give him I'm going to give him 10% of everything he gives me. In other words, he's going to respond by simply giving back to the Lord in honor of all that the Lord had done for him. He's going to tithe. Now, tithing is a huge subject, uh, and a lot of preachers preach tithing today, but um, it's an Old Testament concept. In the Mosaic law, it wasn't 10%, it was 23 and a third percent. You gave two tithes, two tithes every year, and the third year you gave um, another tithe, but that was only every third year, so it averages out to 23 and a third percent. And we're no longer under the law. Uh, however, Abraham gave 10%, and now Jacob gives 10% prior to the Mosaic law. So I've said, in light of all of that, uh, if you read the New Testament, God doesn't give you a percent. He says, what I want is that you do it from the heart, and uh, the more you give, the more I'm going to bless you. He does say that. I'll see to it that you're blessed. It's all 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, are the two chapters in the Bible on giving. We uh, don't give, we tip. A lot of people just tip the Lord. They don't give. They just put something in the plate so they don't feel guilty. You know? um, reminds me of an old cartoon. Do they still have Dennis the Menace? Is that still a cartoon? No? Is that in the paper? I used to read the comics every day. I don't anymore. Um, there was an old Dennis the Menace cartoon where the picture was uh, the family had gone to church and they had gone to the back and the pastor was standing at the back and the father and the mother and Dennis was standing there and, and some other people were standing around and Dennis looks at the pastor and he says, what are you going to do with that dollar my dad put in the plate? <laughs> we tip the Lord. But when you're really touched by the Lord, you want to give. It's one of the characteristics of somebody that's really plugged into the Lord. They want to give. They have a giving heart. God gave us his only begotten son. And when you really realize, wow, the Lord is in this, then what happens? is you want to give in return. All right. We're talking about encouragement, really. So the point of this passage as a whole is that when Jacob was discouraged, the Lord reminded him of his promises, his presence, and his provisions. And Jacob responds by, well, giving the Lord a sacrifice an offering. Now, before I close, I want to I want to make a couple of observations. In the context of the book of Genesis, how many times have you heard me say that as we've been going through Genesis? In the context of the book, what's the point of this passage? You do know. What's the point of the passage? I'm going to give you the land. In the context of the book, it's I am the God of Abraham and Isaac. I promised them the land, and you're in their 
line of descendants, and I'm going to give it to you. That is the reason this passage got put in here. But apart from that, in the context of the life of Jacob, just looking at his story, his life, the passage is about encouragement. At this point in his life, you can't help but see the discouragement and the encouragement. One author has said, The Lord appeared at the top of the angel-filled stairway, restating the promise to Abraham and adding more promises of blessing and protection for Jacob. The patriarch acknowledged God's presence, memorialized the place with a monument and name, and vowed to worship the Lord there if he would be bless him and protect him, end of quote. Another says God's promise of his presence, protection, and providence, or provision, I should say, should inspire devotion and worship. So this is just looking at Jacob as a person in the context of his life. So the point is this. God encourages his children. He encourages us. How does he do that? Well, he does it a whole bunch of ways, but one of the clear ways he does it is he communicates to us through his word that he's made promises to us he will fulfill, and in the meantime, he's with us no matter what happens. Now, in Jacob's case, this was pretty dramatic. Happened all in one night. One dream and bam. Uh, This isn't the end of the story. We're going to see more of that later. But I think he got up the next morning and was clicking his heels and he had gotten encouraged. It might not be that dramatic for us. Depending on the situation, it may take a little long time. At the beginning of the story of this message, I told about um, a man that lost his manuscript that he had worked on for two years and um, let me tell you what happened after that. Uh, one day he was walking down the street, and he noticed that there was a stone wall under construction. He was transfixed. That tall, sweeping wall was being raised one brick at a time. It was a moment of inspiration for Carlisle. If he wrote one page at a time, one day at a time, he could write that book again. And that is exactly what he did. He needed to put the pieces back together again, one brick at a time. So sometimes when you're discouraged, you may need to put the pieces back together again, one brick at a time. But of all the things I've said in this message, The thing I want you to remember is he said, I'm with you. That's what's important. My purpose is going to be fulfilled in your life. I'm with you. Just trust me. Not going anywhere. That should encourage anybody that knows the Lord. Willie Mays is a very famous baseball player. He began his major league career with only one hit in his first 26 times at bat. Do you understand how bad that is? 
That's a good way to get shipped back to the minor leagues. His debut was unimpressive. It seemed unlikely that he would last more than a few weeks in the big leagues, let alone become a great player of the game. He had an uncertain future in baseball. The turning point came when the manager, Leo DeRocher, found him crying in the dugout after another miserable performance at the plate. Leo DeRocher put his arm around Willie Mays and said, What's the matter, son? And Mays said, I can't hit up here. I belong in the minor leagues. DeRocher told May, quote, as long as I am manager of the Giants, you will be my center fielder. It wasn't long before Mays began hitting the ball. He was on his way to becoming a legend of the game. He went on to hit 660 home runs. That's the third highest in the all-time list. And he stole more than 300 bases. Clearly, Willie Mays is one of the greatest players who ever played the game. There was someone there to encourage him and tell him, I am behind you. This will work out. So during those times of discouragement, we need the same thing that Willie Mays needed. We need a word of encouragement. We need to know that the coach is with us. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for the promises that you've given to us. Thank you for the provisions that you've provided for us. But most of all, thank you for your presence. That you've promised to be with us and fulfill your purpose in us. Father, thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.